the call of the first disciples. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. My beloved brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, during our last class, brethren and sisters, we considered, of course, that monumental period of our Lord's life when he underwent those severe temptations as a prototype of all temptations that would fall upon his brethren hereafter. And during that time too, brethren and sisters, we were in the, in the record of Luke's gospel and we noted that Luke, in order that he might sustain a theme in that section, left a few days in history to link together a very wonderful theme as he told us that Jesus was first led by the spirit of the wilderness then in verse 14 he told us he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit and then leaping over quite a few events in our Lord's life he took us straight to Nazareth and had the Lord standing up in that synagogue and saying the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And Luke was obviously at pains, brethren and sisters, to tell us that the Spirit was triumphant. And of course we will know that the Lord Jesus Christ came to fulfil those monumental passages of Scripture, many of which, of course, on that very day when he was baptised and taken to the wilderness, would have been filling his mind. But when he came out of that wilderness, he would have been thinking about that reference, brethren and sisters, that all flesh may be grass, and all the goodliness thereof may be as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, said the prophet, and the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of Yahweh blows upon it. And that's what Luke is trying to tell us. And the Spirit of Yahweh had blown upon that flesh and had directed his path through that wilderness and he came out in the power of that Spirit. And now we pick him up, brethren and sisters, in the record of John because we want to take this in as near as we possibly can to chronological order in our Lord's life. We won't try and do that meticulously because it's sometimes impossible. But we'll try and take each major event as it arises. And it's fairly obvious that the next event which overtook our Lord which we find him in this record, in John's record, is when he returned after the temptation and he came back to John to the banks of the River Jordan. And in John chapter 1, brethren and sisters, what John does for us is to record the first week of our Lord's life after his temptation. Now you look at it with me. In the first chapter of John, for example, there are four consecutive days recorded and then the last day, the seventh day, is recorded. So we have, as it were, almost a day-by-day description of our Lord's life after his temptation. We read in John chapter 1 and verse 19 that this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And on that day, brethren and sisters, he testified his witness to the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in verse 29, the next day. So the day following that, Jesus approaches John and John sees him coming and he points him out and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And he focuses attention upon our Lord, brethren and sisters, as the absolute fulfilment of all the sacrifices of the law of Moses. Not only because he called him a lamb, because he made two points. And the points were these. But there is the Lamb of God, brothers and sisters, which is a sin offering. And from Genesis right through to Malachi, you will never, ever, ever find anywhere in the Old Testament a lamb for a sin offering. 
Search and see. You won't find it. So what John was saying is here for the first time in history came a lamb for a sin offering. So that was one point he was making. And if that lamb, which had never been used before for a sin offering, was here now, if that was a great and a fundamental change in the law, so were its effects, because this man was going to take away the sin of the world. And the law of Moses, brethren and sisters, was certainly not directed at the world. So what a monumental change that was on the next day. Now we read in verse 35 of day 3. And day 3 finds another great change. The next day after John stood and two of his disciples. And here we're going to find for the first time, brethren and sisters, the disciples of John, some of them, lead him and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Another great change. And then in verse 43, on the fourth day, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and that signaled another great change. And the light that had sprung up, brothers and sisters, was going to leave Judea in partial darkness until it returned and to blaze its way into Galilee. And that was going to signal a great beginning of the Lord's ministry as we shall see when we get to that section. And then John, in chapter 2 and verse 1, speaks about, and the third day. And I believe he's talking about the third day after the last one he's recorded in verse 43, which would make that the seventh day. And what happened on the seventh day, brethren and sisters? That week culminated in a wedding. And Jesus went to Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and they were all called to a wedding. How wonderfully significant that was. But here was the Lord Jesus Christ who had gone through in that wilderness temptation to reverse the very principles which destroyed the first man and woman. And whilst they may never have been separated in life, they got separated in death. And they brought down upon themselves the condemnation of mortality and they mulled into the ground. And the Lord went into that temptation, reversed the whole principles of the failure of Adam and Eve and brought his disciples to a wedding that they might understand where God's purpose was tending, tending to a great and a glorious marriage, wherein the principles of, of divine truth, brothers and sisters, would be honoured and respected. And he brought them all, at the end of that week, to a wedding. Now you look at John chapter 3. How does John the Baptist then direct his disciples' attention to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well listen, verse 28 of John chapter 3. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Messiah, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. And that's where he took him. He may not have been the bridegroom of that particular wedding, brethren and sisters. But I tell you what, he was the most important member of that wedding above all of them. There he was, and he took them to a wedding. And John made that point. But he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. And he said he is the best man, as we might call him today, or as he styles himself, the friend of the bridegroom, was very glad and rejoiced to hear the bridegroom's voice. For he said in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, brethren and sisters, that was a wonderful point that John had made. As if to bring their disciples' attention to the fact that some of them had left him and found their way with the Lord Jesus Christ to a wedding. And the Lord alone can bring us to that wedding. Now Jesus never let him forget that. 
In the ninth chapter of Matthew, when the very disciples of John came to him later, brethren and sisters, to question him as his relationship to John, look how he answered them. And you see how this theme is all tied together here. And so we find in the context of John's disciples again in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14. Then came to him the disciples of John saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, don't you remember what your master said? And he did rejoice, brethren and sisters. He went to that wedding and he rejoiced in his fact that he made the wine for the place. And entered into that feast with those disciples. And although, of course, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and there was no real joy for this, this side of the resurrection, there was a joy, I believe, in this sense, brethren and sisters, that he had John's disciples there, and there they were at a feast. And that feast prefigured that great and glorious seventh day, which will culminate in the marriage of the Lamb. And we're all going to get taken there, brethren and sisters. It'll be a wonderful day, and that's where it'll all culminate. And so as John opens up his gospel record, there he is, taking him to a wedding. There's John telling him he's going to the wedding. He's the bridegroom. And there's the Lord telling them later on, don't you remember what he said? So there's obviously there, brothers and sisters, a very wonderful train of thought in the Gospel of John, not only in that respect, but in many respects. Now let's come back to that record and consider some of the things together as the calling of those first disciples. There are five of them recorded here, brethren and sisters. One of them goes without a name, and he's obviously John himself. Andrew there, of course, is first. You get later on, you get Peter, you get Philip, and you get Nathaniel. But I believe there were six. I believe James was included in that little group too, and we'll see that as we proceed. But there were these six disciples who joined themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ as he made his way out of that wilderness came across to John and then moved away with John and took with him two of his disciples. Now look how John puts it in verse 35. That on that third day, again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples looking and Jesus walking. You can't miss it, brethren and sisters. John stood. The disciples were looking and Jesus is moving. And there it all is in a nutshell. John's work had come to a standstill, as it were. Not that he failed to go on from there, of course. But as far as the purpose of John's whole mission was concerned, it came to an end. He stood. The disciples were looking, and Jesus was walking. And there it all is in a nutshell. You know, if you read Rotherham's translation, he beautifully captures that. He mentions the fact that John was standing, the disciples were looking, and Jesus was walking. And there it is. The Lord had now entered into active service. And two of those disciples were looking at him. As John had taught them to look, look at him, brethren and sisters. They were looking unto Jesus, who was now in active service, as far as his ministry was concerned. That God had now called him to commence that marvellous ministry, which was to bring men around him, and to lead them through all the experiences of life, as he walked throughout all Jewry, Galilee and everywhere that he went and they walked with him now one of them we're told in verse 40 was Andrew Simon Peter's brother 
And I don't think anyone would dispute the fact that John was the other, although he never names himself. And of course that's consistent with the record. Nowhere does John speak of himself. And he's obviously that other disciple, as he often refers to himself. And you know, brothers and sisters, as we read that record, Jesus, as he walked, and John stood. You look at verse 29. Look back at verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him. Look how it's all changing. Day two saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming to John. Day three saw him walking away from John. And you know, brethren and sisters, that's the last time they ever saw each other. You think about that. That's the last time they ever saw each other. And John would watch him walking away. And he would look at the look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Andrew and John's eyes would be riveted on him. And as he moved away and John stood stock still, he said to Andrew and John, Behold the Lamb of God. Why didn't he say that taketh away the sin of the world? Because you see, brethren and sisters, they would have been there the previous day. There's no doubt about that. These men were up were Galileans. They, they weren't down there for a day's trip. They were obviously clinging to John. And the previous day they would have heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And they're not fools. They'd have gone home and they said, That's an astonishing thing. We don't know of any Lamb of God for a sin offering. This is obviously the sin offering. And next day they see the Lord Jesus Christ coming, passing by, and John says, That's him. And he doesn't have to say that takes away the sin of the world. Because his purpose is not to direct them to the Lord's purpose, but to identify him. There he is, he said. Behold the Lamb of God. And then John said, and the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And you know, so important was that, he repeated in verse 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him. Why does he repeat that? Because you see, brothers and sisters, there's no command by John for them to follow him. John's trying to tell us that he didn't follow the Lord Jesus Christ because he was commanded to do so. They heard John speak. He didn't say, there he goes, now you've got to follow him. He never said that. He said, that's the Lamb of God. And hearing that, they followed him. And so important was that to John that he repeats it. But he didn't follow him because he was commanded to do so. But because they thought about it, they had at least 24 hours, and of course much longer than that, because John had been teaching of this one ever since he came to the Jordan. They had a long time to think about it. And when their attention was drawn to him, John said, that's him, they immediately went. And you know, brethren and sisters, if you don't read that record carefully, you miss the point. You listen. Behold the Lamb of God. And they followed him. That's ridiculous. Who would ever follow a lamb? And you think, well, is that what the record is trying to tell us? You see, when you talk about lambs, brethren and sisters, you invariably talk about them following somebody else. We read all over the scripture about the shepherd that leads his flock and that carries his little lambs in his bosom. But here they followed a lamb. You think, well, is that really important? In Revelation 7, notice how this is repeated. You notice how this is repeated in the record of truth. Verse 17 of Revelation 7. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them. 
says the Revelation. Chapter 14 and verse 4. Think about these words. These are they which were not defiled with, with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And you know, brothers and sisters, it takes a lot of faith to follow a Lamb. They were looking for a lion. Israel were looking for the King of Israel, as Nathaniel called him. Or as, or as Andrew said, or Philip said, we found the Messiah. That's what they were looking for. It took a lot of faith to follow a lamb. But that's what they did. And John and Andrew were the undefiled virgins, or part of the undefiled virgin bride of Christ of Revelation 14, because they followed that lamb with us wherever he went. And the point is made in those three references that the lamb would lead them. It was an anomaly, brethren and sisters. You had to have enormous faith in him because when at times he had heaven's power in his control but he didn't use it upon his enemies, their faith would have been shaken to its foundation. He was a lamb and they had to keep on following that lamb. Following a lamb is very difficult. It's very easy to get behind a lion because he'll clear the path, he'll, he'll inject you with a lot of confidence, there's power, there's wrath in him. And he's, no one can stand in his way. It's very easy to follow a lion. You try following a lamb. And John makes that point. Behold the lamb of God and they follow him. Very, very interesting is the way that John puts that. Now, you know, you read this record and it seems, you know, if John is telling us something, which is almost superfluous, you think, well, strike. You read it and think, well, we know that they follow him and Jesus turned, he said that and they said this. But you see, you read it properly. Verse 38, then Jesus turned, he saw them following, and said, what seek ye? Now notice what he said, brethren and sisters. He didn't say, who seek ye? He wanted to know, what seek ye? And the point that the Lord was making is, what is it that you want with me? What do you think you're going to get to by following me? Where do you think we're going to finish? What do you want? Later on when they came to get him the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas came with the scribes and Pharisees, he said, Whom seek ye? And they were very interested then in his person. For a very different reason than he wanted them to be interested in his person. But here it's a question of what do you want? Like Peter later on said, Lord, we have left all. What shall we have, therefore? Is it a question, brethren and sisters, of what? Or is it a question of who? That's the question. And you know this also. I believe that what the Lord was doing here was this. He didn't permit anyone to follow him unless that person was prepared to give a commitment. The Lord was well aware that those disciples were following him. He didn't have to look over his shoulder. But he was also well aware, as John, I believe, deliberately tells us, he turned. And if people get behind the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants to know, what do you want? And I'll tell you, brethren and sisters, nobody followed him without a commitment. Lord, I'll follow you to death, said one man. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man hasn't got where to lay his head. Let me first go and bury my father. Let the dead bury their dead. If anyone's going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to be a committed man or a committed woman. 
unless you're committed, brethren and sisters, don't bother. That's the point that John is making. What seek ye? They had to give a commitment. How long did he give them to think about it? Listen to their reply. They said, Rabbi, Rabbi, Master, Teacher. You know, brothers and sisters, they might have thought they were doing him an honour with that title. Do you know that title had only been in use for about uh, 60-odd years? It only came into vogue during the early days before the Lord Jesus Christ, about B.C. 30, when there were the rabbinical schools of Shammar and Hillel, the two great colleges, you might say, of divinity, as far as Jewry was concerned, when they went to get their doctorate in divinity. And those two great colleges were in opposition to each other, and so the title arose, Rabbi. And they became then a common title for anybody who was looked upon as a great teacher or a master, and they applied that title to John. And they may have thought they were doing the Lord a service by calling him Rabbi, as if he graduated from one of those schools. They had a lot to learn, brethren and sisters. But still, John and Andrew were two very sincere men, no doubt about that. And they said to him, where do you abide? Where dwellest thou? You notice in the margin of your Bible it says, abidest. Same thing really, except that it's a very endearing term later on when the Lord Jesus Christ talks about him and his Father will come and abide with anybody. If they will knock, and they will enter in and abide and sup with them, he says. If anyone will let the Father and the Son in, they will come in. But at the moment, brothers and sisters, it's all the other way around. And you see, what Andrew and John were saying, I believe, is this. And here comes the crunch. They were saying to the Lord, he says, what do you want? And they said, well, look, really, we want you. They did want him. But they said, we'd like to appoint you at a time. Where do you abide? Now, he didn't give them any time at all to think about it. Come and see. You know, brothers and sisters, they obviously were prepared to make a later day at their convenience. In the Greek, as Rotherham translates it, it runs on him continuously. Coming and seeing, he said. Come on now. And that's the sort of call that our Lord Jesus Christ makes, brethren and sisters. And so we have a half-hearted endeavour to follow our Lord. We, we think we might get baptised, or after we're baptised, we think we might make a commitment to the Lord. We think we might walk in his shadow for a while, and perhaps he won't notice we're there. And he'll turn around and say, what do you want? And we might say, well, uh, well, um, we'll think about it. Come now. They had to go. Then, right there and then, never mind about your convenience or my convenience, brothers and sisters, when that call comes, you go now or never. And that was the point the Lord made with them. And John is writing it up beautifully for our consideration. And they came and saw, says the record in verse 39, they came and they saw, brothers and sisters, and all that they saw and heard, of course, was very, very convincing indeed. Now it says, they abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. I wonder whether you could remember, if you were writing an epistle like John, 21 chapters, brimful of drama, I wonder whether you could ever remember, brethren and sisters, the first hour that you ever set your face to follow the Lamb. Could you remember it? I don't think I could. But John did. 
He knows the very hour that that happened. That to him was the dawn of history. The tenth hour, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon when that happened. John never forgot it. It was a very, very significant time, brethren and sisters, because it was just one hour from the hour of prayer. At three o'clock, both Andrew and John would have been engaged in prayer somewhere. Even down the banks of the Jordan. Silently, perhaps, or whatever. Wherever they were, every Jew of any who had any reverence in him at all was engaged in some form of prayer at three o'clock. We know that from the Acts of the Apostles. Peter and John went up into the temple at the beautiful gate at the hour of prayer. Cornelius was on the housetop at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. One hour later, he's with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where prayer lands you. And about four o'clock, they were preparing that lamb to smoke away upon that altar in dedication to God. It was not a sin offering, it was a burnt offering. But there it was back in that temple, and it was about that hour that they were then about to set light to that lamb upon that altar as the evening sacrifice. One hour after prayer, there's the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And they land in his house, wherever that was. And John, of course, is not one bit interested in telling us what sort of house it was or where it was. And your mind, of course, wonders at what sort of abode the Lord Jesus Christ would have had, brothers and sisters. It wouldn't have been very pretentious. You can reckon on that. But it was a marvellous occasion for those two disciples as they sat down with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's not a shadow of a doubt what they spoke about. Because in verse 41, he finds his brother Simon and says, We've found the Messiah! The subject of that evening was the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would have been the subject for that evening. What other subject would he choose? That's what he had to direct their attention to. First and foremost, he is the Lord's Christ. And that undoubtedly would have been the subject. As to what they would have said would have been anyone's guess. But there wouldn't have been any shadow of it out that the Lord would have taken them to the key passages in the scripture which center on him as the Messiah. And when they came out of that house, we've found the Messiah, said Andrew. Must have been a marvellous conversation, brethren and sisters. Now it was Andrew, in verse 40, which went and spoke to his brother. He was Simon Peter's brother. Andrew is a Greek name, means manly. We know a little about, very little about Andrew, brethren and sisters. He, of course, was the brother of Peter. And you know there were John and James, who were two brethren of Peter and, and Andrew, of course. And we know that John and James and Peter were off times together with our Lord Jesus Christ in a little tight-knit circle. And Andrew doesn't seem to make it quite. And yet it was Andrew who really was the first of those disciples who sprang to his Lord's service spontaneously as an evangelist, and went and got his brothers, and we found him. Yet from then on, he fades out of the record, and his brother, of course, takes prominence in that record above him. But nonetheless, brethren and sisters, I believe it's a great witness to Andrew's character that he sprang to his Lord's service spontaneously because he found the Messiah. Now, it says in verse 41, he first findeth his own brother, and I believe that the emphasis on the two words first and his own indicates that second, John found his own brother. Though he doesn't say that. 
But I believe that the, the way it's written there, he first findeth his own brother. John's clearly implied that secondly, he went and found his own brother. That's why I believe there were six in this first little group and not necessarily five as are named here. And it would be, of course, again, in keeping with the way that John, hiding his own identity, would hide his brothers. He was very humble in that regard. Keeps himself right out of the record and only speaks about what the Lord Jesus Christ did and with other people reacting to him. These, those four brothers, brethren and sisters, were the only four who were together with our Lord when he gave the Olivet Prophecy. That when he went out of Jerusalem to the brow of Olivet during that last week of his life and they had just looked at all the glorious stones of the temple and drawn his attention to them. And when they got across on the other side of the Kidron looking straight back at that temple, they asked him about the end of the world. And Mark says there was James and John and Peter and Andrew. Only those four. And the Lord sat there with them and the greatest prophecy ever given by the apocalypse of course but the greatest prophecy ever given was given to those four only two sets of brothers and there he had them right through his ministry and now he had them at the end and looking at that doomed city he warned them brothers and sisters of all that was coming to pass and among other things he said was this brother shall betray brother to death and how those words would have chilled their hearts and their bones to hear that Brother shall betray brother to death. Fortunately, it was, wasn't them. But they were the things that could have happened. And you know, brethren and sisters, had it been in the, that I haven't had so much matter to speak about tonight, I would have loved to have spoken for a few minutes before this meeting about the need for brother and sister to stick together in these last days. We're on the brow of Olivet. We're looking back at a doomed city, brethren and sisters. This world is doomed. And the Lord hasn't got too many people with him telling him. And I'm going to tell you, I'm warning you, brothers and sisters, of things on the horizon which are going to be horrendous. And the thing that's going to save us is God and the Lord Jesus Christ and us together. And never forget it. And the wonderful thing about this place is the way that brethren and sisters have hung together. You keep doing that. Because it's going to become a desperate need in the very near future. And we need brethren and sisters that all the problems that are coming upon us, personal problems, which could easily create factions as you side with this one or you side with that one, don't do it. Let's all stay there together. And as we sit there as sets of brethren, listen to him, the brother shall betray the brother to death. Don't do that. And if we hang together there, brothers and sisters, we will survive with God's help. No doubt about that. But it's going to take the good sense of every brother and sister of Enfield to do just that. And to be warned about these events that are coming to pass in the earth. And many and varied they will be. And they will not get any better. Be worse and worse. And as we come to these first disciples and see them being gathered together as a close-knit little group, brothers and sisters, what a tragedy it was that when their Lord was taken, they were scattered like sheep upon the mountains. Scattered like sheep they were until they regrouped again and then turned the world upside down. Now we need to remember that lesson and to learn it. And when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a commitment. He'll turn and say, what do you want? And we've got to say, Lord, we want you. And he'll say to you, come now. It's a full-blooded commitment that he wants, brothers and sisters. Then we walk with the Lamb and follow him. And we'll stay with him by his grace. Now we come to verse 41. And of course, 
Andrew, full of the discussion of that evening, which they had with our Lord Jesus Christ, goes to Simon Peter and said, We have found the Messiah. Well, of course, he hadn't found the Messiah at all. Messiah had found him. But Andrew couldn't have realised that, brethren and sisters, at that time. You know, that Greek word there, or rather the Hebrew word there, Messiah. Nearly all, all the time, of course, the word Christ is used as the Greek word. But only twice do we find the Hebrew word Messiah used. Of which, of course, Christ is the Greek equivalent. And the other occasion is in the Gospel of John, chapter 4 and verse 25, when it was used to the woman of Samaria. So whether it be his first disciples or an early Gentile, as it were, the Messiah has come. He is God's anointed. If he's God's anointed, he is the image of the invisible God. If he's the image of the invisible God, all nationalities are defunct because God knows no nationality. If he's the Messiah of that group, he's the Messiah of that group. He's the Messiah of the world. That's what John is trying to tell us in using that, that Hebrew word only in those two places. And here, Andrew thinks he has found the Messiah. He's got to learn later on, brethren and sisters, as Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. We may think we've made a decision to come into the truth. We're going to learn by degrees through our life, brethren and sisters, that we have been permitted to come into the truth. We haven't made any real decision in that sense. No man can come to the Father except by me said the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he came to that, the end of that, end of that history in the synagogue of Capernaum, where I'm quoting from now in a later history of our Lord Jesus Christ, and when he'd driven them all out with his talk, which they couldn't understand, he turned upon the disciples and he said, where are you going to go? And Peter said, Lord, where can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. As if Peter said, Lord, we have made a decision to follow you. The Lord's answer was, have not I chosen you and one of you as a diabolos? And he left them in doubt as to who that was. That they might learn the lesson that I have chosen you. Andrew had not found the Messiah. He had to go through many experiences, brothers and sisters, to learn that Messiah had found him. Now he goes and gets Simon Peter. And it's very interesting in verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus beheld him. Obviously, this was the first acquaintance he had with Peter. Because the Greek word, not an uncommon word, but it's a word which has, has a meaning of one piercing glance. And as Peter came up, the Lord flashed a glance on him and took it all in. You know, you can't feel, I, when I got to that point, I concentrating upon that record, I thought about that remarkable meeting. And the Lord would know this man that was coming to him with a penetrating insight. This is divinity we're dealing with, brethren and sisters. This is God's son. And he looks at Peter with a flashing glance and summed him up in a flash exactly what he was, where he was, where he was going, what he would do and everything. Remarkable, remarkable perception. He beheld him and he said, you're the son of Jonah. No introduction. No introduction, whatever. Now I'll tell you something. You think that's important? You watch this. You watch in the early chapters of John, brethren and sisters, how that in those very early chapters, John is at pains to make the point that one of the hallmarks of Jesus' messiahship was his insight into people that he'd never met. You follow me? You've got this one, for example, in verse 42. You're the son of Jonah. No introduction. 
In verse 43, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find a Philip. Philip had never met him. He'd gone and found Philip. In verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? He'd read Nathaniel, and Nathaniel realized that. In chapter 2 and verse 4, when, Je- when, the, when the mother of the Lord came to him and said, What are you going to do about the wine? He said, What have I got to do with you, woman? He knew exactly what she was thinking. You come over to chapter 3, brothers and sisters. There was a man, we read in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night, and he proceeded to tell him all his thoughts. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin. What would contact with the Lord have with any member of the Sanhedrin? And if he's got no contact with the members of the Sanhedrin, what contact's he got to do with an immoral woman of Samaria? And in chapter 4 and verse 29 we read, the woman went back and said, Come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Messiah? So through those early chapters of John, he is at pains to point out that one of the great hallmarks of Jesus' Messiahship is he's penetrating inside of the people he'd never met before. He knew them. And that's an astonishing thing. It's all right going around performing miracles, brethren and sisters. When you perform a miracle, a miracle's a miracle. It happens in a flash of time and it impresses people with the enormous power to turn water into wine, to calm the sea, to make loaves produce and produce and produce. But when someone's standing there and telling you that who you are and where you're going and what you've been and so forth, it doesn't penetrate as quickly, but when it does, it's astounding to be told that. And what would they think? How would he know that? How would he know that? Well, there was one of whom it was said, brethren and sisters, who would be the root and the offspring of David in Isaiah 11, that there would come forth a bud out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch would go out of his roots. Here was the Messiah, if ever there was a messianic reference. And verse 3 said, He will not judge after the hearing of his ears, nor after the sight of his eyes. How else can you judge? But he won't do that. He will not judge after the sight of his eyes, nor the hearing of his ears. This man doesn't have to be told. And you know, the point I'm making is the point that John makes. And the very last verse of John chapter 2 said, He needeth not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And here the record is telling us exactly that. And one after the other, be it Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, Mary, Nicodemus, or the woman of Samaria, they're all being told that he doesn't need anyone to testify what was in man. And John puts that comment, brethren and sisters, right in the middle of that record of those people that he's telling them their thoughts. Not thoughts that he'd grown up with them and knew later on what their characteristics were of the first meeting they had with the Lord. Had John recorded that at the end of his book, maybe people could have said, well, he grew to know them. He understood them. He came to read their thoughts. He didn't know them then from the viewpoint of humanity, but he knew them, brethren and sisters, from his heavenly Father's viewpoint, and he read them right through and through. And you look at the end of John chapter 2, and I'll read it again, and we'll ignore the chapter division. He needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He didn't need anyone to tell him what he was like. And when Nicodemus left in that dark night, ashamed, of course, that he would be seen with the Lord during the day, he went home with a lot to think about. And what he had to think about was himself. You know, brothers and sisters, it's awe-inspiring when you see a record like that. 
And all these people that came to the Lord went away thinking about themselves. Because he read them. It's very awkward when someone reads you. Every Christadelphian is a good psychoanalyst. Anyone can do that. When we've lived together for quite a while. All the brethren and sisters come with their information about problems. They've all analysed the problem. No one's got any solutions. But they all know the problem. Because we've lived together. But nobody's going to walk through that door and read us through and through at first meeting like he did. And there was the stamp of Messiahship. There it was. He will not judge after the eyes or his ears. He knew what was in man. He didn't need any to testify about it. Incredible. What a man to be walking with, brethren and sisters. What a man to be walking with. And he walks in the midst of the ecclesias. He does. He walks in the midst of the ecclesias. And when our minds drift off into areas of uncleanness, and they do, he's walking, not with us, but in the midst of the ecclesias, and he knows exactly what's going on. You think about that. And these people were arrested by these things. You're Simon, son of Jonah. He changed his name. He called him Peter. And that again, brethren and sisters, how would you like someone to say to you, you're Bill Smith, you're Tom Jones. Tomorrow, I'm going to call you Tom Jones. You, you'd say, hang on, wait a minute, my father called me Bill Smith. Never mind what your father called you, I'm calling you that. You see, this man is exercising prerogatives right off the top. Look, he doesn't say to Peter, what do you think about this second name? You're going to be called Cephas in the Hebrew, Peter in the Greek. I'm going to call you by a new name. Oh yeah! And nobody would brook that. And they would stand there in awe of this man. He knows who I am. And now I've got another name. Just like that. And their minds would go back to Abram and Abraham. Sarai and Sarah. Jacob and Israel. Who changed all their names? Their mind would go to Isaiah 62. When the prophet said to Jerusalem, I will call you by a new name which the mouth of Yahweh shall name. And later on, the great, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the great Amen said in Revelation 3, did he not? I will put upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. This man's got the prerogative to change names. And if names are an index to characters, he's got the prerogative to change characters. That's exactly what he did with Peter. Now I'm using a lot of scripture. We're not only alluding to it because we'd never be get home if we turn it all out. But when Peter got that name, brothers and sisters, here it was only virtually a prophecy. When he finally had that name bestowed upon him in Matthew 16, thou art Peter. It was in remarkable circumstances when Peter had confessed that he was the son of the living God and got a commendation that nobody had ever gotten when they made that statement. Why? Nathaniel calls him the son of God here. He never got that commendation. Why didn't he? Others called him the Son of God. They never got that commendation. You know why? Because you see, brethren and sisters, when he was called the Son of God before, circumstances were such that he could be. But when Peter called him the Son of God, circumstances were such that he could never be. He'd gone to the top of the, of the land. He'd never got further north. He was almost going to walk out of existence. He was right up there in Caesarea Philippi. The whole of Jewry had rejected him. They wanted to make him a king and he spurred it. He fought with the Pharisees at Magdala and then he took his disciples north and they were nearly out of sight of the land and he says, who say men that I am? And nobody was saying he was the Christ. And when there wasn't a soul in the world who believed it, Peter did. That's why he got commended. Because all the circumstances were against it, brethren and sisters. Of course we can believe the truth 
when the Six Day War or the War of Yom Kippur. Of course we can believe the truth when we see this city rocking with the power of the word with their big special lectures and what they used to in times gone by. But when you're down on the dumps, brethren and sisters, when there's nobody believing it, who's going to believe it then? Peter is. That's why he got commended for it later on. But he's got to be built up to that. He's got to get to that point. And upon that rock, God would build his ecclesia. And that we go at pains to point out that the word Peter is the masculine of feminine Petra, as if they were different. Peter is the rock, brothers and sisters, not in his own right, but the conviction in Peter together is the rock. That's the rock upon which God builds his ecclesia, and the ecclesia is made up of people. So you've got to have foundations. And the foundations are the apostles we learn in the Revelation. And the foundation in them was that belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And when Peter got to that point, the Lord admitting with these words, you're Simon, son of Jonah. And he looked at him and he said, Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. And of course, the stress is placed upon fatherhood. Whose son is Peter? Is he Simon, son of Jonah? Or is he Peter, one of the sons of God? Is he? Later on, brethren and sisters, when the critical test came upon him, in the ninth chapter of Acts, when he was given a key to unlock the door of faith of the Gentiles, he was in a city called Joppa! 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 Does that ring a bell? And it was in exactly that little city that the man Jonah got exactly the same key and ran away from it. Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood have not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven, and I give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, he said to him. And he was to unlock the door of faith, the Jews first in Acts 2, the Gentiles in Acts 10. And when the time came, he's in Joppa. And he's got to go to a Roman, a Roman soldier. A Roman is over a hundred other Roman soldiers whose little band is called the Italian Band. And that was the critical test for Peter. And he came through, brothers and sisters, with flying colours because he is the rock. And because Jesus, one penetrating glance and said, you'll stand firm. And he did. Oh, he had his ups and downs. And a lot of those downs were pretty, pretty big crashes. But in the end, he stood tall. And upon that conviction, many others were converted to the faith, brothers and sisters. A remarkable thing. I want to show you now about that conviction. He said to him in the end of verse 42, Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is the Hebrew for a stone or a rock which is in, by interpretation a stone. But really we should read, which is by interpretation Peter. The word stone should be in the margin. Like the same up for the Messiah. It should be Peter in the text and a stone in the margin. He didn't call him a stone, he called him Peter. Petros, the rock. Now brothers and sisters, you have a look in Acts chapter 2. And you'll have to think carefully for this one. Magnificent, really. Here comes the rock. Peter on the day of Pentecost. And this is the rock upon which the ecclesia was built. Here is the foundation of the ecclesia. What do we read in Acts chapter 2 then? But Peter's speech on that glorious day when 3,000 souls were added to the ecclesia. In verse 40 we read this, among many other things that Peter said. 
And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation, this twisted generation. You might say, well, so what? So this. That's a quotation, brethren and sisters, from the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy. You remember Mount Brecon? Do you remember Philippians chapter 2? Can you think back that far? You know the point about the apostle when he said to the Philippians that they would shine as lights in the world and that they would be the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Well, that's the same word for crooked. Remember the occasion we went back to the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy and we read in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy about Israel being a crooked and perverse generation? Didn't you remember that? Well, what was that chapter about? It was about the fatherhood of God, wasn't it? All the characteristics of the Father and about the rock. The rock, verse 4, verse 15, verse 18, verse 31. The rock that begat thee. Here's his quoting from that section. Thou art a rock, and upon this foundation of that conviction in you, Peter, I will build my ecclesia. We're watching it being built in this chapter. And he's quoting the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy about the rock, the rock, the rock, the rock. And there it is. What do we read in the next verse? Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Well, that's the ecclesia. And so on the basis of Peter's exposition of the rock chapter, they all get baptized. Not only upon that chapter, of course, he quotes Psalm 16, Psalm 110, alludes to many other Psalms. But he finishes up with Deuteronomy 32. And they were gladly received his word and were baptized. So the Lord was right. And in one penetrating glance, he saw right down the track and he saw the way that would be done, brothers and sisters. When you're converted, Peter, he said, strengthen your brethren. And he was converted. And he did strengthen his brethren. And he was Peter the stone. But how far would it be from Peter's thought when he turned up at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and was the subject of that withering glance? But it all came to pass in a most remarkable way. Now back in that early chapter of John, brethren and sisters, we come to the fourth day, the day following. I hope you'll pardon me in just alluding to many of these scriptures. I'd love to turn them up with you because it's a joy to read them. But I want to get to the end of this section because there's magnificent material coming up here. There's no doubt about it. There's some beautiful thoughts in this chapter. Now verse 43, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee. Now the Greek is he was minded to go. In other words, he didn't just wander off to Galilee because it was warmer up there or something like that. He was minded to do it. The Revised Standard Version says he decided to go. The time had come, brethren and sisters, for the Lord's ministry to officially open. Now, how do we know that? Well, in John, we won't turn this up, but in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14, we read that after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So, Mark makes the point. After John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter, when he went to the Cornelius, said, that word ye know, he said to Cornelius, which began in Galilee after the baptism which John preached. And so both Mark and Peter witnessed the fact that when the Lord walked into Galilee, 
It was, as it were, the official opening to his ministry. Why would it be like that? Because Matthew said that when the Lord walked into Galilee, a prophecy was fulfilled. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And the land of Galilee, brothers and sisters, as Isaiah 9 had said, which had lain in dishonour, life had sprung up. It had to start there. And although, of course, the Lord's ministry started there, he was down in Judea, he was baptised of John, he was tempted in the wilderness, he walked past John and took his disciples north, but it wasn't until he got there, really, that that gospel of the kingdom of God in his mouth started. And it started in lowly Galilee. That's how God works, brothers and sisters. His son is born in a manger, tempted in the wilderness, and starts his ministry in a lowly district. That's the way God works with people. And with, and with his purpose with the earth. That's how it's all done. And so there it was. And he's going forth in the Galilee. And before he gets there, he goes and finds Philip. Now here's an interesting thing. Philip is the first of the disciples ever found by the Lord in that sense. Because he found them all, really, by God's providence. But in the direct sense, Philip is the first one that Jesus actually went and got. Now we don't know why that he picked Philip. We don't have any prehistory. The record says he just went and got him. And it's fairly obvious for the record here that they're all in the proximity to John's, to the preaching of John. I, I believe they were all John's disciples. That's where the Lord found them. People were prepared for the Lord, you see, brethren and sisters. The Lord didn't find his first followers just from the humdrum of life. He found his followers among those who were prepared for him. And that's exactly what John's mission was. To prepare a people for the Lord. That's what Malachi said. And he'd done it. So where does the Lord find them? With John's disciples. Of course. John's work was no failure. It was a success. A great success among these disciples here. And this is what John is trying to tell us. And he would go into Galilee and he finds Philip. Philip, his name means a lover of horses. I don't think there's anything significant about that. But you know, brethren and sisters, we know practically nothing about Philip except what John tells us. And just by a couple of passages of scripture, we learn that Philip was not always quick on the uptake. Very genuine man. A wonderful brother. No question of that. But he was not very quick on the uptake. And it was Philip, you know, who, when the, the Lord fed the 5,000, that the Lord addressed the question to Philip, because he was by Bethsaida, and Philip, of course, was a native of Bethsaida. He said, Philip, how many, where can we find bread for so many people? And Philip started to work out how much it cost. The Lord was deliberately giving him a mental exercise. And poor old Philip found it a bit difficult. We're not belittling him, brethren and sisters. It, look, it's a wonderful thing to realise that God doesn't call the brilliant. But you see, with Philip, it's a gradual thing. God wants people who are genuine and who are sincere. It doesn't matter whether they can work things out in a flash or not. And the time came later on in John's Gospel when he said, when Philip says, show us the Father. Now you listen to the Lord's answer to Philip and think about this. He's the first disciple that the Lord went and got. And he said to Philip, Philip, have not I been so long time with you? There wasn't any of them like that. Oh yes, Andrew and John had preceded him by a day. But he alone was the one of the first six that the Lord went and got. And he says to the Lord, show us the Father. Philip, haven't I been with you? So long a time. You ought to know if anybody should. And then he said to him, Philip, 
He that has seen me has seen the Father. But before he said that, brethren and sisters, he said this. He said to Philip that no man could come to him except the Father draw him. And you see, Philip might have thought in his own slow way, but how would the Father draw me? Because really, Lord, it was you that come and got me. Philip, Philip, he that's seen me has seen the Father. Oh, and it would dawn on him. The Father had called him. He turned up way back those three years ago. Way back there he turned up at Philip's house. It was the father who drew him. Because there he is. And you see in that context. And you see how the dawn of realisation would come on Philip's mind. Who it was that called on him that day. It was the father. Haven't I been with you all these years Philip? And you don't know the father. Philip you've seen me. You've seen the father. I'm right, Philip. The Father calls, not me. And it's remarkable when John records those after events, when you throw them back on the spotlight of those former events, how those disciples must have marveled in themselves to think of all the years and the days they'd spent with him and the dawn of realisation had come upon them as to who they had there. And they'd come not to what, but to whom? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, brethren and sisters. And that was Philip. Follow me, he said to Philip. And Philip did. Now Philip, we read in verse 44, was a Bethsaida. Bethsaida means the house of fish. We read also that it was a city of Andrew and Peter. Now you think about this. We know it was the city of, it was the city of Philip. We're told specifically it was the town where Andrew and Peter came from. Now, brethren and sisters, again, John's reticence about himself and his brother James would come to the fore. You're not going to learn about them. But we learn in the other records, don't we, that James and John were partners with Philip and Andrew. They were partners in the fishing trade. Now, to be partners, they'd have to be at Bethsaida. So, at least for the first five of the six disciples came from Bethsaida. We know that Nathaniel came from Cana in Galilee. We're told that later. So the first of the six, five of them come from Cana in Galilee, or rather from Bethsaida. And the marvellous thing about that is this, that Jesus stood in that town and absolutely castigated them for their unbelief. So it wasn't as if Peter and Andrew, James and John or, or Philip were brought up in a spiritual atmosphere. Because the Lord absolutely tongue-lashed that city for their unbelief. But those five believed. See, brethren and sisters, not always the environment. It's not always our ability so-called. It's God's grace. And that's what the record's trying to tell us here. That we should understand that. Now, of course, Philip's excited. He's running out in verse 45. And he gets Nathaniel, the gift of God. That's what his name means. The gift of God. There's been much speculation about who Nathaniel was. I think it's fairly certain, brethren and sisters, that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are one and the same person. There are many, many proofs, I believe, of that. Mainly this, that Nathaniel's not mentioned in the other gospel records, but Bartholomew always is. And yet Bartholomew's not named in this record. That in itself is significant. Furthermore, when the name of Bartholomew is found on the other records, it's always found alongside of Philip. Thirdly, brethren and sisters, Bartholomew is a family name. The son of Ptolemai, 
whereas Nathaniel is his own name. And there are many, many other things which tie those two together, which is just an interesting fact of Scripture. But never mind about that. Look at this record. So he finds Nathaniel and he said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. Now actually you read it like this in the Greek. Him whom Moses and the prophets have wrote, we have found. You might say, oh well, it's just the other way around. Of course it is. But you see, brethren and sisters, the emphasis is upon their study. So he didn't rush in and say, we've found the Messiah like, like Andrew did to, to Peter. But he rushed into Nathaniel and says, look, Moses and the prophet, you know what they've been writing? And all they've been saying, we've found him. In other words, there's a reference there to the fact that there'd been a little group of people over the word. And they'd been going through the law. And Moses and the prophets And now they've found him. And their search has led them to him, brethren and sisters. Not that they, of course, are their own own power of thinking. Not because they are their own choice. They were not aware of that. But they were dedicated men. They're not fools. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to call fools. He came to call people who were prepared for the coming of the Lord. They'd heard John. They'd repented. They were studying the scriptures. And they knew the coming of Messiah. They called him all sorts of titles in this section, as we'll see a little later on. They knew a lot about him. Not Jesus himself, but Messiah. We've found the the, the essence of our studies, he said. Isn't that a wonderful thing, brethren and sisters, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to find the essence of your study? And that's what we're doing here. We're doing that. We did that Easter camp, didn't we? We've been through the law. We've been through some of the prophets. We've been through a little bit of the word of God. We found him up there, didn't we? And we're finding him here because this is what it's all about. And how excited they would have been to come to the very essence of their studies together. And I believe that little group would have been over that word, knowing of the portent of the prophets, the spirit of the times, the feeling that was in the air, that the prophecies were all tending to this direction, and we found him. Well, Nathaniel wasn't so easy to convince, brethren and sisters. He wasn't so easy to convince. Where'd you find him? Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, Philip called him. They had a long way to go in their study, brethren and sisters. As far as they'd got was quite marvellous. They had a long way to go. Son of Joseph. Nathaniel, when he met him, called him immediately the son of God. The two friends came to an opposite conclusion. And I believe but Nathaniel didn't really understand in its full import that title. I don't believe any of them did at this stage, except John the Baptist perhaps, but these disciples certainly didn't understand that. But nonetheless, those two friends came to an opposite conclusion. One called him the son of Joseph, the other one said, that's the son of God. And the thing, of course, that convinced him was the son of God, even in that, we might say, not in a deep sense, but even in that sense, was the fact that he read his thoughts. And so he says, well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, people say, well, of course, Nazareth couldn't have had much of a reputation. Well, when you think about it, brethren and sisters, it really couldn't either. Because, you see, Galilee, the whole of Galilee in general, was treated with utter contempt. But Nathaniel is a Galilean. And he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? If Galilee was in contempt, that's the opinion of a Galilean. Because we're told in chapter 2 that Nathaniel himself was of Cana, or rather in chapter 21 and verse 2, that Nathaniel was of Cana of Galilee. He was in the very neighbourhood of Nazareth. And he had no time for the place. 
But out of that little township, which was despised even by Galileans, a good thing had come. Well, Philip can't convince him. There's only one thing that convince anyone, brothers and sisters. There's only one cure for prejudice. Come and see. No other way around it. You don't believe me? Come and see. That's a remarkable thing, you know. Because he didn't say, come and hear. He said, come and see. What do you want, said Jesus. Well, Philip wanted him. Come and see him. And you know, those two words are an incredible testimony to our Lord's character, brethren and sisters. The penetrating, powerful, all-absorbing character of our Lord that absolutely captivated those disciples. The great Son of God absolutely captivated them. Come and see. And Philip knew without any words that when Nathaniel got there, there was no doubt about the conviction when he met this one whom they had found, the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, let's read the record together, brethren and sisters. Let's read the end of verse 46. End of verse 47. Philip said unto him, Come and see. And Jesus saw. That's how John writes it. Come and see. And Jesus saw him coming. Who sees who first? That's John's point. Who sees who? And before Nathaniel can make any assessment whatever of our Lord, the Lord gives a complete assessment of him. So he came and saw. And Jesus saw him. And he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no God. Now that's different than saying to Peter, you're the son of James. He just takes one step further with Nathaniel. Never mind about who his name is, where he come or where he lived. He knows his character. And you know something, brethren and sisters? Nathaniel was so, so humble and of such a disposition that he knew his character himself and he didn't argue about it. He didn't say, oh Lord, really? That's too much for me, you know. He didn't have any pseudo-humility. He didn't fob it off as saying, oh, well, it was flattery. He knew it was right. He says, how do you know me? You know, brothers and sisters, we didn't know Nathaniel. We might think he was an egotist. But we know Nathaniel. And we have in that record a touchstone of truth for us. And the Lord read him and he knew he was right. And though we might decry at times the praises of others, sometimes we think ourselves very great and it's pseudo-humility. He was honest. How do you know me, he said. And Israelite indeed, in whom there is no God, there's not a shadow of a doubt who he's talking about. He's talking about Nathaniel, but he's talking about Jacob, isn't he? And Israelite, Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. In the Greek version of the Old Testament scripture, called the Septuagint. When Jacob is described in chapter 25 of Genesis as a man of subtlety, that word is used. An Israelite indeed, in whom there is no Jacob. That's not the only contact with the life of Jacob in this record, brethren and sisters. You listen to this how it proceeds. But you see, Nathaniel was an Israelite indeed. What makes an Israelite? Now let's just expand that in your mind. What makes an Israelite? An Israelite is a man that hangs on to God when all odds are against him and he can't help himself and he learns by bitter and painful experience that until he submits to God Almighty, he's nothing. 
And Israelite indeed. And it's fairly obvious, brethren and sisters, that even before he met his Lord, Nathaniel was a man of high quality. He was a student of the word of Moses and the prophets. He had understood the, the character and the aspects of Messiah enough to recognize him at first glance. And he was a man that had gone through experiences in life that had taught him that he had no confidence in himself, whatever, and that his trust was in God. That was Nathaniel. In the words of Genesis and the life of Jacob, he had prevailed and he had come and seen God face to face and his life was preserved. And he's looking at the Son of God face to face and his life's going to be preserved. And I believe that was the marvellous testimony to Nathaniel. And our Lord, brethren and sisters, didn't hand out compliments indiscriminately. Very, very few people are complimented by our Lord. This man was. And it wouldn't have been done without good reason. And Nathaniel recognised that there there was those qualities in himself, in all honesty. And Nathaniel said, how do you know me? And the Lord said this to him, before that Philip called thee. You know, what he was telling you, brothers and sisters, is this, that Philip never called him at all. Burst into the house. You know, our studies together, we've found the one that's been working. How do you know? Come and see. Comes and sees. The Lord says, before Philip ever called you. You know, as we go through this record here, it's only Philip himself, the man who was slow on the uptake, that the Lord actually went and got. All the rest were got indirectly, either through John the Baptist or through their brothers. And yet the Lord called them all. But they would have been completely unaware of that at that time. Before Philip ever called you, when you were under the fig tree, Nathaniel's mind would boggle at this. And you know, in the Greek, brethren and sisters, the Greek is in the in the sense of going, it's in the sense of action, when you went under the fig tree. So that Nathaniel obviously chose the time to go out of, the, of that day and to go underneath the fig tree. He had made a deliberate choice to do that. He hadn't just wandered over there. There was something in his mind. He went and sat under the fig tree. And the Lord says, before that ever happened, I saw you. Now, you know what's marvellous about that? I haven't got time to turn this up. But listen to this. Micah said that every man would, would dwell under his own vine and fig tree. And then went on to give a description of the life of Jacob. And spoke about him that halted, that God would gather, that him that was a remnant, God would make a strong nation, and that Jacob, would, the, the nation of Israel, would come to the tower of the flock, the tower of Edah in the Hebrew. Back in Genesis 35, Jacob came to the tower of Edah. And I won't go on with that story because it'll take us the rest of the night. But that was under a fig tree. And there in the context of Micah, every man sitting under his own vine and fig tree, there's a history of Jacob. Nathaniel's mind bobbing at this. And he says, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Brethren and sisters, they are the two subjects of Micah 5. The two subjects of Micah 5 is he whose goings forth were for everlasting, the son of God, the king of Israel. An Israelite indeed. Look where his mind is under that victory. And the Lord picks him up like that. No wonder they came to the conclusion that that was the Messiah. That mind was running along that channel and the Lord beautifully picked that up and said, you're an Israelite indeed in whom there's no Jacob. 
and he'd come, brothers and sisters, in his own experiences of life to learn that lesson, that there was nobody to trust but God. And when he learned that lesson, the Lord had him brought to his feet. Philip might have been the messenger, but the Lord was the caller. Now the Lord, when the Philip made that astonishing statement in verse 49, or rather Nathaniel in verse 49, he said, said unto him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. As I say, they are the subjects of Micah chapter 5. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. Verily, verily, said the Lord. Truly, truly, a double amen. You know, brethren and sisters, you can see in the words of our Lord a joyous, almost a joyous surprise, if you can call it that, or a joyous acclamation, as if he said to Nathaniel, reading his mind, telling him what he's thinking, following down the track of those thoughts of the prophets, bringing him to this conclusion of Micah 5, the Son of God and the King of Israel. He's almost saying, oh, Nathaniel, on such little evidence, little evidence that I'm presenting you now, you prepare to believe, Nathaniel, you'll see greater things than these. And you know, brethren and sisters, we who have believed, who have never seen the Lord Jesus Christ, if we believe, we'll see greater things than that. If the evidence presented to before us may be considered little in the respect to some of the manifestations to Israel, if we believe, we'll see greater things than that. And our Lord was joyous. Oh, verily, verily, I say, he said, as he saw the wonder of that man's mind. Beautiful, really, when you put yourself in that record. The Son of God, the King of Israel. Verily, verily. We won't stop at that, but you know, that's a double amen. Do you know that's only found in John's Gospel? 25 times. Amen, amen. It's only found in those places, brethren and sisters, in John, nowhere else. But you find it in the Old Testament. My words you do. And you find it in the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you find this, that John uses that expression, or the Lord does, and John records it of him. Amen, amen. And there are two amens, of course there are. Because in Isaiah 65, we learn that Israel will come to be blessed and to vow in the God of Amen, the true God. As the word Amen can be understood verily or truly. Amen. So be it. The true God. And so Israel will come to the true God in Isaiah 65 and they will make their vows to him and they'll be blessed in that God, the God of Amen. And in the Revelation chapter 13, chapter 3 rather, in verse 14, Jesus said, I am the Amen. There's your double Amen. And there's two witnesses. The Father and the Son. And there they are. Amen and Amen. And Philip would be blessed in the great Amen. God himself and in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Amen. And so John writes later on, This is life eternal, to know thee the only true God. And Jesus Christ is thou sent. Amen and Amen. And only John uses that expression. And to believe in the Father and the Son, brethren and sisters, is a joyous thing. And if we believe in the Father and the Son, greater things than these will we see. Amen and Amen. And Jesus was so thrilled with that. As he always thrilled with people who demonstrate their belief. Now what were the greater things? Well, look at them. Hereafter. Now that's not in the original. You can forget it. I found to you, you shall see heaven open. Why is hereafter not in the record? Because brethren and sisters, the heavens were already open. It's not in the original manuscripts. Matthew said, I saw the heavens open. 
The thing about Nathaniel was, he's going to be shown it. It's not going to happen hereafter. He's going to be shown it. And what are you going to see? The angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now we know that's the life of Jacob, don't we, brethren and sisters? Jacob came to Bethel and he took a stone for his pillow and he lay him down to sleep. And behold, he dreamed. And he saw set up on the earth a staircase better understood in Hebrew as a staircase reaching under heaven and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon him. What's the meaning of that? Well the order is important. He didn't see them descending and ascending. He saw them ascending and descending and that's important. Because had he seen them descending and ascending they would have started in heaven and finished in heaven. But because they were ascending from him and descending they started with him and finished with him. And God said to Jacob, I will be with you in all places whither you go. So the vision of the staircase taught Jacob that everywhere he went, God was with him, because wherever the angels started, there they finished. I will be with you in every place whither you go. Now what was the greater thing that Nathaniel was going to see? Look, brethren and sisters, back at verse 33 of this very chapter we're in, John chapter 1. And John says, I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining. There's the greater thing, brethren and sisters. So there might have been an ascension of angels and a descension of angels upon Jacob. There might have been an ever-ending cycle of angelic ministration. But when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ, and Nathaniel's eyes are going to be wide open to see this, he would see the heavens open, but this time, He wouldn't see the Spirit start from here. He'd see the Spirit start from there. And so coming from heaven first, it would come down on the Lord Jesus Christ and stop there. That was the greater thing. And furthermore, John taught in his sixth chapter, that when the Lord ascended up into heaven again, brethren and sisters, he said, what if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? And we know, of course, he didn't pre-exist. But we know also that he was God's son. And we know what that means, or partly we know what that means, brethren and sisters, that his origins were up there, and that's where his destiny was. So Jacob might have had the promise of God ever to be with him, with angels going there to there and there to there. But the greater thing was to see God's heavens open, the Spirit come down and stay there, stay there, remaining with him, to such an extent that it took him through life, picked him up from the resurrection and took him back to where it was before. Nathaniel's eyes were really open. Now you know, brethren and sisters, the chapter ends on a glorious note. It really does. Who were the angels ascending and descending upon? They were ascending and descending upon Jacob. But Nathaniel's going to see this happen upon who? The Son of Man. Now why would the Lord say that? Now you listen to this. I find this enthralling. In this short section which we've been studying tonight, brethren and sisters, I don't know of another section of the scripture in which in the mouths of people are found so many titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in verse 34 and in verse 39, both John and Andrew and John call him, or rather John calls him, the Son of God. In verse 36, 
He's called the Lamb of God. In verse 38 and 39, he's called Rabbi. In verse 41, he's called the Messiah. And in verse 49, he's called the King of Israel. That's what other people were saying. When it came to the end of the section, Jesus said he called himself the Son of Man. Now you think about that. All those incredible titles. But he doesn't own any of them at the moment. He said, you'll see this happen to the Son of Man. And nobody saw him like that. And it was so obvious. It was so obvious that he was a human being. But nobody saw him like that. You know, brethren and sisters, you might think that's strange me talking about it, But listen to this. You turn with me to the 12th chapter of John. This is the end of the Lord's ministry. The very end of his ministry. You look at this. This is the last recorded incident of our Lord's ministry. Before he, was, he went into, the, into the, that part of his life where his ministry, his public ministry was finished. And we read in the 12th chapter of John some remarkable words. You listen. Verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now what's the context? The context is in verse uh, 20 there's Philip and in verse 22, 21 rather, there's Philip and in verse 22 there's Andrew. There they are again. And they're back together, the two first disciples. The first one that, Jesus, that came to Jesus and the first one that he came to. And there they are together. And the Lord says, now look, the hour is coming that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he makes reference to that title again. Now then, you come over to verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world, this Jewish age. Now shall the prince of this Jewish world be cast out. And I... If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the Lord that Christ abideth forever. How sayest thou the Son of Man be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, brothers and sisters, they would have believed anything. If it had brought the power to bear on the Roman nation, they'd have believed he was the Son of God. If he'd have wrecked the Roman Empire and set up a Jewish throne in Jerusalem, he'd have been the Messiah, the King of Israel. He'd have been the Rabbi. He'd have been the Lamb of God. He'd have been everything. But nobody's going to believe he's the Son of Man. And the two disciples who first heard that, among others, are back together again in a chapter where John ends it by saying, Who is this Son of Man? Because nobody's going to believe that he came here to represent all humanity. Isn't it remarkable? In all those other titles, which he wears so wonderfully now, but the one he wore then, brothers and sisters, nobody wanted to know it. And it's quite remarkable. I want to just conclude by alluding to a few more scriptures. The Son of Man. People say that was the title of Ezekiel. It was not. Do you know, brethren and sisters, about 80 or more times, it's about 84, 85 times, and almost the same amount of times, Ezekiel was called Son of Man. Not the Son of Man. The title is unique. And yet it appears about 80 times to our Lord and to Ezekiel himself. And Ezekiel was given that title of Son of Man, and the chapter opens, Ezekiel's chapter opens with these words, and I saw heavens open. 
and the heavens were opened to Ezekiel and he saw those wonderful visions and he was son of man. He was not the son of man. In the seventh chapter of Daniel, Daniel says, I saw one like the son of man. And they brought him before the Ancient of Days and judgment was given unto him. And John, in recording that prophecy, said in his fifth chapter and verse 23, the Lord says, I judge no man, but God has committed all judgment into my hands because I am the Son of Man. That's exactly what Daniel has said. So the representative of humanity, brothers and sisters, is not only their judge because he understands their feelings, he's their judge because he overcame their weaknesses. He will answer to no man and every man will answer to him. That's what Daniel said. And the only time we find the Son of Man in the Old Testament is in those marvellous scriptures which speak of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that thou visitest him? The Son of Man. Well, what about the man of God's right hand, whom thou madest strong for thyself? The Son of Man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. Here he is. And when they're all prepared to believe anything of him, brethren and sisters, providing it flotted into their way of thinking, nobody was going to believe he was the Son of Man. Who is this Son of Man? That's the end of his ministry. And he opened it with that title. These are marvellous things that we're reading about, brothers and sisters, and it behoves us to give them our deepest thought that the day will quickly come when the Lord will give us a penetrating and searching glance. He will look right through us and pray, God, in that day that we'll be Israelites indeed in whom there is no God. And coming to him on that day, brothers and sisters, we will know who the Son of Man is and who he was, what he stood for, and he represented all humanity, the Son of God, the King of Israel.